Have you ever wanted a bit more positivity in how we talk about the agency business? Or maybe some fresh ideas for how you and your agency can thrive? If so, you're in the right place. Welcome to the immortal life of agencies. This is the podcast that celebrates the visionaries and changemakers who are actively future-proofing our industry. You'll hear from the leaders who've been there, done that, and are happy to talk about the t-shirt, even if it's a bit grubby. Sounds good, right? In each episode, you can expect short, sharp conversations with some of the biggest, broadest, and deepest thinkers in our industry, and a bunch of practical takeaways that you can apply to your own agency today. So in short, expect untold stories of progress, always optimistic and never dull. Welcome to the show. Today's episode of The Immortal Life of Agencies features none other than Rory Sutherland. Now, Rory is the vice chair of Ogilvy here in the UK. He's been the president of the IPA, uh, the trade body for agencies here in this country. He's also probably done more than anybody else um, with bringing behavioral economics into the agency world and into the conversations that we have with, uh, with clients. Um, so unsurprisingly for Rory, if you've ever seen him speak before, you'll know that this conversation was full of all sorts of fascinating kind of avenues and cul-de-sacs and exciting anecdotes and the kind of stuff that really only Rory says. But at its heart, and this is why it's such an important conversation, this was really about innovation. What are agencies doing well when it comes to innovation? What are they getting wrong? Uh, what are the roles that clients can play when it comes to agencies? Just taking a broader, deeper definition about what it means to be creative, what it means to grow our clients' businesses. So let's get started. So Rory Sutherland, welcome to the show. Absolutely delighted to be on. We've had great conversations in the past. It seems only sensible to uh, record one or two of them or even broadcast and share them. That's the perfect lead in to something you said to me previously, which I thought was fascinating and probably a wonderful place for us to start today, given the nature of uh, the immortal life of agencies. And that was an analogy you made to me. You said, uh, or rather you compared the advertising industry to the 1920s fashion industry. So just tell me a little bit more about that, please. Well, what I mean by that is if my grandfather, who was a country doctor, uh, if he'd wanted a suit, he would have gone along to a tailor with a set of pre-specified requirements. And he then would have effectively uh, instructed the tailor as to what he wanted, and then the tailor would have used the best of his skill available to clothe my grandfather. And this would probably happen, uh, you know, in the case of my grandfather, it would probably have been a tweed suit, and it would have happened about once every two years. Um, Then, of course, proper automation entered uh, the manufacturing of clothing, Uh, And it was possible to manufacture huge numbers of suits very quickly. Now, the way the fashion industry responded to this was partly by automating the downstream process, but it was also by changing the way they sold clothes, by which I mean they produced very large numbers of suits, some of which in eccentric designs that no one would have specifically asked for, and then they put them in racks in a shop and people went in and bought them. And as a consequence, they bought more clothes and they probably bought a vastly greater array of different kinds of clothes, some of which I suppose by the time of the 1960s and 70s were highly eccentric and unusual, uh, by dint of just being exposed to more opportunities for buying clothes and wearing clothes. And because the process was instantaneous uh, and vastly less laborious and and time-consuming. And What strikes me about the advertising industry since we stopped being paid on commission in particular is 
when we were paid on commission, there was kind of an incentive to say, I know you didn't ask for a suit, but look, look what I've got here. Never mind the width, feel the quality. Because effectively, the more uh, solutions you could find, which actually ran, the more money you made. Now, now we're paid like lawyers, effectively by the hour. Uh, we only solve the problems we're asked to solve. And that strikes me as an unbelievable limitation on the exercise of creativity, uh, simply because actually, if you look at, well, innovation, if you look at scientific inventions, if you look at um, breakthrough ideas in medicine, what you find is that actually the majority of the time, they kind of happen backwards. No one was asking them, okay, in advance of Viagra being discovered as an accidental byproduct of uh, an attempt to um, cure angina, okay? No one was actually, well, they possibly were, but nobody was actually searching for a cure for impotence. It arose obliquely. It arose effectively as an accident. We all know the stories in marketing law about posted notes, and we know the stories about night nurse and the fact that supposedly the Walls Vionetta was produced um, or the idea came about because there was a faulty conveyor belt, which was somehow jerky, which caused ice cream to come out not in a slab, but in a kind of elaborate scroll work. Okay. Now, I don't know how true all of those are. Well, it is undoubtedly and inarguably true. Certainly the post-it note story is true. Uh, the fact that Night Nurse was a brilliant marketing reinvention of a very good daytime cold and flu remedy, which they developed, which had the unfortunate side effect of sending you to sleep until a very shrewd marketer said, well, it's no good as a daytime cold and flu remedy um, because you can't drive and operate heavy machinery. Uh, not that I operate much heavy machinery, to be absolutely honest. Um, but uh, if we position it as a nighttime cold and flu remedy, the fact that it sends you to sleep isn't actually a bug, it's a feature. And a very, very large amount, particularly significant breakthroughs as opposed to mere incremental improvements. A very significant amount of that kind of creative process in life kind of happens in reverse. And to take an extreme example, okay, <laughs> if you take perhaps the most important painting of the last century, Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, um, although you could debate that, but nonetheless, I think Picasso would have had a bloody long wait uh, if he'd been sitting around waiting for someone to come up with the brief. Um, uh, look, mate, um, could you just paint me sort of five or six prostitutes in an enormous painting where some of them have the faces of African masks, okay? That wasn't going to happen by waiting for the request. And so the exercise of proactive creativity um, is now effectively a cost in our business. And yet I think actually it should be the greater part of the value we create, as it is indeed in tailoring, where you know, off the peg, effectively, in some shape or form, is now literally 99% of the business and um, made-to-order, tailor-made, or what you might call catwalk fashion is, you know, expensive, true, as we are, but actually a very, very small part of what we do. And part of the problem is, of course, we've got this awful thing where we, like koala bears who only eucalyptus trees, we only eat brand communication budgets. But I would argue that any creative organization, whether it be a design company, an advertising agency or anything else, has the capacity to go far beyond that in terms of its diet and what it eats. 
Rory, I love it. There are so many um, fascinating points to leap off uh, into uh, in there. Um, first and foremost, I'm far too juvenile to let it pass that you said that the solution to impotence arose on its own. Um, I think that's important to note. And um, <laughs> secondly, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff around there, the kind of the commercial model that the industry has found itself adopting, um, perhaps not particularly successfully. Um, there's also some really interesting stuff in there about the nature of innovation. And um, I think just unpacking those examples, Post-its and Viagra and, and Night Nurse, um, it just gives us an opportunity perhaps to see where our industry is at its best. Um, and for me, that takes us back to your original point about tailoring, right? If we are as um, an industry sort of mass producing um, uh, solutions to problems that the client have defined themselves, then perhaps we're losing the opportunity to come up with, you know, really creative, lateral, left field, original, innovative thinking that perhaps, to your point, comes up, you know, uh, adjacent to the client's brief. So it seems like we're maybe looking in the wrong places for the things to solve. I mean, Marmite is famously a byproduct of brewing, okay? And uh, one of the reasons I founded a behavioral science practice is for 35 years in the industry, every time you had a pitch, you answered the pitch brief. And then there was that final slide, which was, other suggestions. In other words, as a byproduct, this is, by the way, why AI might be very dangerous in advertising, which is that the value of advertising is, is not only in the advertising. It's in the process you're forced to go through and the time you're forced to spend devoted to the customer viewpoint in producing an ad. You have to think long and hard about, you have to do that wonderful thing, which is called the customer Copernicus, to quote the title of a recent book which is you reorient yourself to the customer point of view, not the organizational point of view. And one of the dangers about AI short-circuiting that process, and indeed programmatic advertising short-circuiting that process, is maybe the painful, time-consuming process that in the name of efficiency we've tried to bypass or short-circuit is actually the greater part of the value of doing what we do. In other words, what I'm actually saying there, which sounds outrageous, is that it might be worth, particularly B2B companies, producing an ad campaign which they haven't got the budget to run just for what it tells them about their business and its relationship with their customers. Why should they choose me? You know, who are we talking to? When are we talking to them? All those questions are necessarily asked in the process of creating an ad. Well, I think there's something really interesting in the way that we sell as an industry. We are, I think, um, sort of conditioned to imagine that we need to show up with all of the right answers. We tend to ask questions uh, of clients in order to show that we're clever, as opposed to showing up with that more of a diagnostic mindset. Yes. Showing up and saying, well, I'm asking you this not because you can pat me on the head and tell me how smart I am, but because if we get to the good answer, then we're in a better place to really know where to look for, you know, to define the problem, to better define the solution. But also, if my grandfather had requested a suit, to go back to that earlier analogy, and the guy had come to him and said, you know, he might have been able to cross-sell a cummerbund or something. I don't know. Okay, right. Um, <laughs> but you, you're not in the mindset to buy a completely different suit, which the person has also cobbled together to solve a different problem, e.g., you know, a dinner jacket, okay? Now, what I'm saying here is that one of the reasons I founded the behavioral science practice was that I always noticed this annoying last slide, and I used to sit there and go, well, actually, two of those bullet points on this last throwaway slide the insights we've had as a byproduct of doing the campaign might actually be more valuable than the campaign itself, but nobody's really listening. 
I'll, I'll tell you a lovely story about this, which is I can't name them, but somebody who worked on the Marks and Spencer's advertising campaign some time ago always threatened but never followed through with the threat that they would refuse to produce any advertising for Marks and Spencer's, clothing, not food, until they fundamentally cha- changed their flooring and lighting supplier. Okay. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but Marks and Spencer's stores are weirdly utilitarian in the clothing section. All right. Now, there are certain rules of high end fashion, which is if you're going to pay 250 quid for something, you need to have a carpet, you need to have non industrial lighting for the most part. And when the people have bought it, you need to give them a rope handle bag. Okay. Don't ask me why. Them's the rules. Okay. It's a kind of category heuristic. And he or she, I'm keeping them really anonymous, always felt that it was kind of half pointless advertising their clothing because however good it was, it was being sold in an environment which was completely inimical, inimical to charging a premium um, for high-quality clothing, which m clothing is, okay? And it's increasingly very good on the fashion front, but they're shooting themselves on the foot uh, when, they, uh, when they come to the stores and I'd also argue they're shooting themselves in the foot by using every when it comes to deliver. But that's a separate point, okay? Now, the fact that the conversation is prescribed by kind of procurement now, so we're purely defined, judged, and compared with other competing and pitching agencies alongside the brief that we were asked to solve, not the one the problems we weren't asked to solve. But most problems weren't weren't actually known problems until the solution arose. Okay, no one was looking for microwave ovens, okay, before someone discovered you could do this. And that was, again, accidental. The chocolate in someone's pocket melted when they were working with microwaves for some military purpose, I think, okay? You you never said, you never went into a market research group and said, I'm really happy with my existing barber. I just wish he'd flick burning methylated spirits in my ears. Okay. Until the Turkish barber came along, we didn't know there was (laughs) demand for that. And so much of the world, we pretend the world happens forwards for reasons of self aggrandizement. Most progress kind of happens backwards. It's a byproduct of someone trying to do something else. Let's pick up on that. Okay. Let's, Let's pick up on that because it strikes me what we're ultimately talking about here is the what's the brief? Um, is the brief very prescriptive based on the fact that the solution has been perhaps, you know, pre-prescribed by uh, the client and they may or may not be the best judge of what the problem is, never mind what the solution is? Well, let's go even further to the the interior of the industry. Right. What's the problem with scam advertising? Go on. We absolutely excoriate scam advertising because it's cheating, okay? Now, when they made the pilot for Breaking Bad, no one called that scam programming, did they? Right? Got it. Now, that guy who made Breaking Bad, if he was sitting there waiting for someone to go, can you make a, you know, <laughs> a nine series documentary about a chemistry teacher who goes rogue and starts making crystal meth in New Mexico? Okay. It's never going to happen. TV makers know that it basically happens backwards. So this is, we're, we're, a fork, we're in a fork in the road then. As an industry, we're at a fork in the road. Yeah. What we're talking about here is collectively, you know, procurement, you know, brand-side marketeers, agencies, getting to a place where we can ask better questions and then be in a position to create more innovative solutions. So this kind of line of thinking tends to go one of two ways, right? It's either about, well, it's important that agencies kind of, you know, puff out their chests and, you know, really believe in their value and, and challenge the brief and try and, you know, push back 
at a point of demand where actually the involvement of, you know, a lot of the procurement community might uh, make that feel scary or there'll be some jeopardy that'll be thrown out of the process. So that immediately gets shut down for a lot of agencies. Well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you, a, I'll give you, an absolute real-life example here of the malicious and generally malign effect of the procurement industry. Okay. Uh, which is that if, you, if you're briefed to solve a problem with advertising and you come up with a solution that doesn't involve advertising, you're not commended, even though it may be more effective and less expensive, you're kind of rejected from the process because now easy comparison is not possible. What they want to know is, of the four people who can produce ads, who can do it most cheaply, not who can solve this problem in the most ingenious way. So you actually become constrained by the brief. The great saying of the planning community is a brief is a springboard, but the brief isn't a springboard if you have procurement. It's a straitjacket. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to think that that's changing in part. Um, there are some more independent voices in procurement. There are, sorry, just to be clear, my wife, my wife used to work in procurement. There are very good enlightened people in procurement, okay? But they're in a minority and they're not always in the right place. For sure, for sure. By the way, it can be a strategic discipline, but it mostly isn't because it is too easy to justify your existence through cost cutting and too hard to justify your existence through value add. Or, I mean, look at, okay, look at the things like the, the crisis in distribution. Everybody was basically focused on price. No one was focused on resilience. Yes. All right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a very, very classic problem that happens. So I, I think there's a whole other conversation to be had here about procurement, about best practice. Um, we'll certainly be having some procurement voices on the show um, in the future. So I don't get waylaid by that, but I do think there's something really interesting here. If, if the answer is not to challenge the brief because there are too many kind of impediments, if you like, to that being successful, it seems like the other fork in the road is to preempt the brief is to go and create a brief for yourself. And obviously you've talked about the behavioral um, economics um, consultancy that you've, you've launched. Obviously you've been a huge advocate for, uh, uh, for BE, not just in your kind of daily practice, but also during your presidency for the, uh, for the IPA um, here in the UK. So um, is there an opportunity for agencies to get better at making the brief rather than taking the brief? Well, um, this is, if we were a really sensible commercial industry, can, would work as MIP TV, not the BAFTAs. If you go down to Canada at a different time of year, there's a thing called MIP TV, and people show programs they've made, which are presumably, in many cases, successful in one market, and they sell them to other people. Now, it would seem perfectly reasonable to me to have 50% of CAN not being the BAFTAs, awards from, for things that have already succeeded, but a marketplace for ideas that haven't yet run. For example, here, you know, there are many, many great, if you take the great, great work that's been done on McDonald's, which is featuring, you know, the idea of the celebrity and his, in this case, his own particular take on how he eats his McDonald's, okay? This is Wyden's work, right? That idea is a bit brand specific, okay? And that McDonald's, by being the biggest, is in a unique position to run that idea. But let's say, let's say that idea had been turned down by McDonald's. It's been transformative, by the way. It's, uh, it's magnificent. Uh, Whedon and Kennedy work at their absolute best, okay? And if that idea had been turned down, it would have ended up in a, basically in a skip, right? Now, okay, the way the TV industry would work would be, well, I couldn't get a second season from Channel 4, but I'll go and see if, you know, uh, if anybody else is interested in this. We can't do that. Everything that we don't sell to the person who requested it effectively ends up in landfill. Now, do agencies not already do this? 
Yeah, it's not efficient, but presumably it's been going on since the year dot. There's the creative's bottom drawer. Exactly. You've read my mind. Yeah. But the opportunities you have the opportunities you have are still confined either to your freelance work or to um, uh, existing agency clients. What I'm saying is there should be a role for really interesting ideas that haven't yet run to find a much wider marketplace. If you'd waited for my grandfather, um, uh, you uh, would never have had, you know, if you like, the safari suit, okay? Right. I'm not, I'm not, or the Afghan, the Afghan coat, okay? It never would have happened because there's no chance in hell a country doctor is going to request such an item of clothing. On the other hand, when you had Carnaby Street, that's what you got. Now, I think there needs to be a kind of advertising Carnaby Street. By the way, one one result of this would be some creative people would get very, very rich, just as some television people. Um, you know, the person who came up with, uh, what's that thing where you had to cook shit? Uh, I mean, one of many programs. But the person who came up with that format is insanely rich, ready, steady cook, I think. Okay. Insanely rich because it was sold to lots and lots of countries and lots and lots of markets because it was a widely applicable format. Okay. Most of the wealth created by creative people is basically stolen by the advertising bureaucracy now. And there, are, there is no real means for creative people to be properly remunerated for the value of their work. Um, it's, a, it's rather like a market where the art dealers are much, much richer than the artists. Got it. Got it. I, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, MIP TV, I'm not, I'm not being weird. I'm just doing something we do in behavioral science, which is called the lateral category analysis, which is look how other industries have solved a problem and see if it might be applicable to your own. And I think this is. Yeah. I suppose the, the I can imagine the pushback here would be, and I, I take your point about the, the solution to McDonald's brief um, being something which wouldn't KFC necessarily. Could have done. Exactly. KFC okay. could right. have done that up to a point. Arguably, you know, perhaps McDonald's is more iconic. It perhaps lends itself to that idea a little bit more. But let, let's take that as yeah, red. Yeah, yeah there, there are so, things you can do for Coke that you can't do for Royal Crown Cola. Yeah, got it. For sure, for sure. Um, but it, the, the easy pushback on this would be, well, you know, it's all very well coming up with a, you know, an editorial format or a TV format or, you know, a drama like Breaking Bland. Uh, Breaking Bland, sorry, that's Code Finery's <laughs> piss poor wordplay um, for our newsletter. Breaking Bad. Um you can go and sell that in multiple territories because that's a solution to a viewer demand in all sorts of places, um, in all sorts of languages and so on. You know, are advertising's best creative ideas, as e- are they really as equally applicable uh, and equally saleable on multiple different occasions to different brands? Um, if that's how most industries work, it's solved once, sell many times. Unilever don't wait for me to come along and specify my toothpaste or my, um, uh, you know, or my detergent, Okay. Most industries solve first, sell later, okay? Uh, we are so kind of constrained by finance that we have no real – I mean, we live hand-to-mouth. We have no real discretionary R&D budgets within agencies. And my contention would be that if we did, we could be, we'd be short-term poorer. We'd probably miss three quarterly targets, but we'd be long-term richer. Now, I'll give you an example of this category problems, Okay. An awful lot of agencies all over the place are probably working on the how do you enc- how do you encourage people to buy concentrates? Concentrates are better for the environment, let's say detergent or floor cleaner, because there's less packaging, the transportation costs are lower, um, and so on. Now, actually, that's a problem you can't solve at the brand level, because consumers tend to think that the thing that has the bigger facings and the bigger size package is better value for money. 
But you can solve it at the category level if, say, Unilever and P&G. And I had a Coke client agree to exactly this point, by the way, which is if you actually, you know, with, within the limits of legality, coordinate with your competitors, you can all start selling concentrates. You just can't, there's first move a disadvantage there. You can't put the bell on the cat. And yet agencies do this thing where they, and, and, and the guy who, the brilliant guy from um, uh, Stephen Mayer, from Mayer Bird Associates, who's a genius, by the way. Yeah, yeah, client of ours. He, he was the first person to tell me this, where he said that we always do this. And the great thing about this work is it only works for your brand and nobody else. Okay. Now, anybody involved in sales would say that's the stupidest thing you can do, that the way you sell something is, and if you don't, if you don't, if you don't buy it, we're going to sell it to someone else, right? It's a terrible way to sell because it's like an estate agent going, well, there's nobody else interested in this house, right? Okay. And actually the house is totally inappropriate to anybody else but you. You'll never sell a house. My dad was in the property industry for 30 years. He said, the only reason people buy a house is, is because they're frightened someone else buys it. And that's, what, that's why estate agents play this game of saying, well, basically either shit or get off the pot. They say, oh, oh well, we're having a lot of interest at the moment. I'm doing a viewing on Wednesday, actually. So I just wondered if you wanted to up your offer. Okay. Now, we don't do that. We go, well, nobody else is interested in this place. I'm not showing it to anybody. In fact, it's not even available on the open market. So uh, take your time. Okay. So I want to get into the practicalities of this. Let's imagine that as an end, uh, let's take one agency. I'm fond of saying that it's this, you know, the issues that agencies face is a question of physician heal thyself. So let's, th- let's think less about industrial change and sort of systemic, you know, adaptation. Let's think about one agency that's heard this podcast and they're thinking, shit, that's really interesting. Now I know I've got one example of exactly this, but I want to hear it straight from you. They have heard this, they've thought about, you know, lateral category analysis, and they recognize that if they proactively come up with some great ideas that solve problems um, that could be applicable to multiple bra- uh, multiple um, categories, multiple brands within those categories. It could be applicable you- to one, but it's spontaneously mm-hmm. generated. You know, Got it. I mean, you know, I mean, artists have commissions. I'm not suggesting it only works in one direction, by the way. And artists have patrons as well. So what would you do? What would you do to take that to market? Uh, okay. It, first of all, it is impossible for us to significantly innovate as an industry while we're still paid by the hour, because it's a perverse incentive. It measures inputs. It doesn't measure outputs. Therefore, you are eventually, over time, going to become incentivized into oblivion. And for the evolutionary mechanism to work, which it does in large areas of capitalism, consumer electronics, etc., for the evolutionary mechanism of capitalism to work, you have to have a reliable feedback mechanism, which encourages you to create value. And for as long as you're not rewarded for the value you create or the efficiency with which you create value, you're, value, you're actually incentivized towards something which is in absolutely, uh, in, in many cases, actually certainly oblique to that. It's a very bad proxy. And at worst, it, it, it's downright uh, misleading. Okay. Of course. Then the people who run agencies, who are by and large people looking at spreadsheets, are now thinking, we need to do more of this stuff that's profitable. But the stuff that's profitable is merely time-consuming, laborious stuff. It's not the stuff that's actually valuable. And so we have a perverse incentive. One of the reasons we've lost productivity in the economy as a whole is because there's a fundamental problem with middle-class knowledge work which is it's very difficult to measure output, and output is generally delivered unevenly. So we generally judge people on inputs. That's why there's this hostility to working remotely. 
No one really knows whether it's more efficient or not. So they're falling back on a proxy of, I can see them and I can see that they're busy as a kind of proxy for actually what they're doing is really valuable. Now, you don't get working class people dicking around, right? Okay, think about the working, well, working class job is generally and intelligently working class people are doing one of, one of three things, okay? They're doing useful work, they're bunking off, or they're at leisure and having fun down the pub singing Chaz and Dave songs, he said, you know, laughably stereotyping people. <laughs> that must be the most UK-centric reference we've had on the show so far. <laughs> but you don't see bricklayers just randomly building bricks where they're not needed, okay? Yes. Or removing bricks that someone else has just built. In middle-class office work, that kind of bullshit happens all the time, okay? This is why, this is why the working class are fundamentally underpaid because they're paid at the marginal cost and the middle class are fundamentally overpaid because they can generate apparent work that requires their, their remuneration, even if that work actually is either um, worthless or, in many cases, counterproductive. You know, I, I, you know, say what you like about a plumber. They don't turn up on time, but nor do they just build pipes in random parts of your house. Okay, right? <laughs> and I think there's a huge problem with the whole knowledge work economy, which is we're measuring inputs, not outputs, and we're remunerating people on. And that causes a whole load of perverse uh, incentives like creating make work, presenteeism, you know, people replying to emails at two o'clock in the morning to look busy. And actually, one of the reasons I think remote work appealed to the people doing the work is they could feel that it was more efficient. Okay? Yes. Because the extraneous two hours of commute, cleaning your teeth and having a shit shave in the morning, etc., all that stuff was suddenly liberated and you could actually focus yourself around what mattered rather than what looked good. Yes, yes. So this, this goes much wider than just the advertising industry, if you want, but where you measure inputs and reward on a cost-plus basis for inputs, you're never going to get a great business. Incidentally... If you, if, if you charge on cost plus and you increase efficiency, okay, your costs go down. So your cost plus goes down. You're actually making yourself less profitable by making yourself more efficient. I've, I've been there. I remember mean? selling, uh, selling a, a software solution, um, I don't know, it was 10 or 15 years ago, into agencies, funnily enough, um, as part of um, it was when I was at Omnicom. And the idea that, um, you know, that you could sort of take on a piece of software, you know, uh, a license for it and be able to charge, you know, perhaps 20% more than you paid for the software license was where they started, as opposed to charging 10% less than the astronomically high figure they would have charged for if they'd done it manually. Of course. It of does course. take me neatly round to the question of AI. So if, um, as our industry is um, uh, kind of prone to doing, we give away great thinking and then hope to make the money back um, through the, dis uh, the delivery, the implementation, as you say, the sort of input-based, time-based measures, um, AI is a problem, right? I mean, what by the, happens by the when way, that work gets way, automated? When you said hope, yes. When you said hope, okay, that's an important verb. Although you, you know, yeah, uh, in that if you don't have a strong procurement culture, okay, you can rely on a kind of uh, client reciprocation to encourage you to actually add value in ways unasked for, okay. And the reason for that is the best way you can reward an agency is length of tenure. And in the pre-procurement age, you might argue, there was a kind of implicit exchange, which is if we do a load of things for you which are valuable but which you didn't ask for, you'll reward us by maintaining the duration of the relationship and perhaps by not being mega stingy in some of the other stuff we do. 
there was an implicit, you know, there, those, those implicit value exchanges happen throughout the human economy. They don't happen very much within the measured economy. Now, once you throw in procurement who demand a repitch every four years and basically say uh, anything that agency has done over the pre- previous four years, well, they are the incumbent, but that counts as nothing towards their likelihood of retaining the business, okay, you further disincentivize that kind of proactive relationship. 100%. We see this all the time. One of the things that uh, agency chief execs bring to us as a challenge, um, and it seems to be having more and more, is this idea that, you know, the nicest possible way, they're account handlers, they're senior suits at all sorts of levels, from the very junior to the very senior, are effectively not able, not willing, they are nervous of... um, trying to find briefs, trying to find work, trying to solve problems proactively, probably because they're slave to timesheets, but certainly because they don't have the skills and the commerciality to go ahead and do that. So we've we've lost this sort of implicit reciprocity. It's rather like, why uh, do I tip my Deliveroo driver? I don't have to. If I were a procurement person, I'd treat it as a one-off standalone transaction. But I don't, because if my Deliveroo driver is a regular driver, which is an important if, by the way, um, because relationships with... Um, repeat relationships develop a quality which is completely different to one-off transactions, okay? There's a whole load of benefit of the doubt and extra mile that becomes implicit in a repeat relationship, which isn't there in a transactional relationship. And the reason you tip your, your, you know, your, your favorite restaurant when they deliver your takeaway is basically part of this investment in the relationship which is that when I ring up and you're saying, oh, I'm a bit busy because it's before Christmas, you'll go, ooh, it's Mr. Sutherland. I'll go the extra mile for you. Now, when you you effectively commodified pitching, all of that stuff, that tacit stuff, actually got eradicated. Uh, What happened with Marks and Spencer's under a guy called Sir Richard Greenbury, I'm not having a specific go, um, but he, he moved all the production to Asia Uh, there was a huge increase in um, profitability for a short time. What they failed to notice was that because M&S was so valuable as a customer to many local or UK-based suppliers, those people performed a huge amount of R&D with M&S in mind. And suddenly, they were just buying clothes. They weren't receiving proactive ideas. This is written up by uh, John Kay, I think, in his, it might be an obliquity. Um, It's certainly written up. So there was a period where M&S enjoyed exactly what you do. These things are micro-efficient and they're macro-inefficient. Yes. There are lots of things where if you narrow the area of comparison and the area of uh, measurement and you you reduce it to its most narrow function, rather like the Dorman fallacy, which I might talk about separately, what you end up doing is destroying a large amount of less tangible value. And generally the problem is that it works in the short term and it's only catastrophic later when the cost-cutting consultants have already left and taken credit for their short-term success. Got it. It's a, recur- it's a recurrent pattern, what I'm saying. is I'm not saying the advertising yes. industry is uniquely bad. I think it is quite bad. And part of the reason is, by the way, if I want me to be blunt, okay, I'm being really blunt here. When you separated media from creative, which was a dumb decision to begin with, it was entirely done around kind of ideas of scale. No reason to separate out media planning, for example. Generally speaking, this is being very unfair to people on both sides, but the entrepreneurial class went with the media agencies and the courtier class went with the creative agencies. When you say courtier, what do you mean? And we've suffered from that. When I was in a direct marketing agency, <laughs> now I won't name them, okay, 
but okay. Um, a very, very close friend of mine who's very, very senior in the UK advertising industry, like me, had ha- had to go into hospital. Right. And I said to him, her, I'm preserving anonymity here to the maximum extent. I said, can I confess something? I said that actually, if you worked 35 years in advertising, uh, going into hospital is actually quite, in- for a day, is actually quite enjoyable because it's people making a fuss over you rather than the other way around for a fucking change. <laughs> okay, right. Now, what I'm saying is that there's, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit of I can make you a deal. Yes. Okay. Went with the, that skill went with the media agencies and the, oh, so good to see you. You know, we must play another round in Files and Andrews. Okay. Now, this is a totally unfair, okay. Just to be clear, this is a totally unfair stereotyping <laughs> of account people. Okay. And, and what it is, it's a, it, it's a specific extreme given as an example of what is merely a propensity. But yes. you get my point. I hear you. I okay. hear you. I uh, yeah. I think what I'd love to finish on, Rory, is um, I'm going to put you in uh, hopefully not too difficult a position, but I'm going to ask you what you would do given a scenario. So you are somebody that has really pioneer, pioneered the application of psychology in advertising. You're someone that's had a, a long and lauded career in the industry. But by the way, don't do don't necessarily do this yourself. I'd love it if you do. We don't want we we don't we're very collegiate. We don't really compete because our job is to grow the market, not to. Uh, grow market share. Okay. Yes. Very simple Trottian principle there. If you know, yeah, yeah. if you're doing quite well in something, grow the category. Don't grow your your share of it. Uh, and to be honest, I mean, when I make my point about proactive solutions, I think if you've got effectively Dave Trott, Paul Feldwick, and you know um, uh, Emma de la Fosse, say, okay, you you know, if you've got those three people in a room, they could probably solve global warming. And yet we're not being given that brief. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you were running an independent agency of your own with no constraints, as you say, no accountants running a business for you, uh, and you're in a position to reinvent the industry one agency at a time, what are what's the one thing that you would change to sustainably grow that agency? Uh, without changing the way you're remunerated, and unfortunately in the behavioural science practice, for the most part, uh, we're paid by the hour still because it's difficult to escape from that. Um, I would I, I would try and find some sort of payment by value added. Very difficult to do, and Jeremy Bullmore was right to caution about that. But some great uh, I would I would add. Well, uh, I'm not going to give away my secrets because I'm doing I'm trying to do this within the organisation I currently work with. I would look for network effects. Solve one cell many times. Now, actually, behavioural science allows for network effects because it provides you with a system of categorising your breakthroughs. Yes. So rather than going, we did this thing for Diageo and it worked really well, uh, I spoke to someone at Diageo once who said that I worked there for six years, 90% 90 of the value I created in the six years was a single decision, which was to put slow gin in the same bottle as Gordon's. Gordon's slow gin was in the same bottle of Gordon's and you put it next to Gordon's on the shelf. Now that way it got high traffic, it's purple, so it gets a hell of a lot of attention. It's also half as alcoholic as gin, so you make more money because you can charge the same price on something you have to pay less duty. And people go, shit, that looks nice. And by the way, slow gin is a great drink. Because if you want a less <laughs> alcoholic middle of the day drink, a slow gin and tonic is bang on the money. Okay. Now, you would regard that without behavioral science. This is the value. This is why we have you on the show, Roy. This is it. Oh, exactly that. Well, don't you don't get me started on air fryers, that's all. Um, before, <laughs> now, be, now, before, uh, she was a hugely bright person who realised what was going on. But a lot of people would go, God, that was lucky. You know, oh, okay, right. And they go away and they go and do something else. 
If you've got behavioral science and you've got Robert Cialdini and people like that, you go, hold on, that's a choice architecture issue. Okay. Mm. That's that, you know, this is a choice architecture thing. Um, how else can we apply choice architecture within our business? What are we doing wrong that's killing our business elsewhere? Because the choice architecture is wrong. And you can then replicate your breakthrough. So behavioral science at least provides advertising with the with the means to go beyond one-off brand-specific solutions to a very specific predefined problem towards the element, towards the area where you get proactive and go, let's talk about this holistically. Let's look at the system. Because the problem with business is that most people aren't complexity thinkers, and they think that you optimize the system by optimizing constituent parts, and that's not what you do. That tends to end up micro-efficient and macro-inefficient, okay? Now, the consequence, what I'm saying there is that by having this Linnaean classification, we have there are no really successful businesses which don't exploit either network effects or moats, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the media industry has a moat, which is scale, okay? The creative industry has no moat. You can start a creative agency with basically a credit card and a brunch of curries, okay? There's no, and so, as I said in my tweet, the problem is, is that the media agency worked out how to make money out of media in the absence of creative, and the creative industry has not yet worked out how to make money out of creative in the absence of media. And that's what we badly need to do, because of all the solutions we can actually provide, only a small subset of them involve throwing money at Rupert Murdoch. There's a very large subset of solutions, doing obviously PR and design, but going much further than that, that involves solving problems without bought media. But the muscle memory of the creative agencies is that we run an ad, we make money. We don't run an ad, we don't make money. Got it. And so bit by bit, I can see various things that will need to fall into place before we can actually reach some sort of escape velocity. But it will have to require a moat, and or uh, network effects and or residuals, okay? Yes. So in other words, by solving a problem, you get better at solving a subsequent problem. And we don't have any of those three things. And if you don't have any of those three things, you're not really a business, okay? And residuals, now consulting firms, consulting firms have residuals because they don't have client conflict. They go and solve a problem for one company in a sector, and then they go and take the solution tweak the fucking logos on the deck and sell the same shit to their competitor. Now, that's actually absolute bollocks, right? That, I mean, that is bollocks, yeah. yes. Yeah, but exactly you talk about residuals as if, it's, it, as if it's solely related to experience within a sector. I would challenge back on that. And if you are an agency that's expertise is particularly focused around solving a problem, you absolutely don't even have the conflict problem. Well, okay, we did something. I, I, I won't say what it is because people have heard me say this before and I don't want to bore people, although... What is, what is funny about doing the speaking, the public speaking thing, is people want to hear the same stuff again, which was fascinating. Your greatest hits. If I don't tell the Eurostar story, people go, it's like going to see the Eagles, but they don't play Hotel California. That's why we came, okay? So you have this. The worst <laughs> thing I do is talk about there. something off my, off my latest album. You know, nobody wants to hear that. Can you tell us? <laughs> Triz, okay, which is a guy called Gerald Altshuller. Altshuller who was a Russian guy who is a very brilliant, actually, I think he was actually Kazakh or um, something else. Maybe, uh, okay. But he came up with this brilliant solution. He's part of the Soviet Union. This very interesting methodology for innovation because he'd been asked, why is the West better at innovation than top-down control economies? Well, the reason given is exactly mine, which is most of the time capitalism, like Viagra, solves the problem backwards. 
you open a yeah. restaurant, you see it's freakishly expensive, it's freakishly successful, and you start to open more of them. And by the way, you've got to be careful with that. I, my daughter, very wisely, who obviously has occasionally listened to things I say, has made the point that Five Guys is probably overexpanding because if it ceases to become a rare treat, maybe it loses some of its magic. Interesting debate, okay? There's always mm. the argument, you remember this from the BBH era, that Levi's became so ubiquitous that when your dad started wearing them, they were on a downward, effectively on a downward path. So, Rory, you've given us a, a kind of uh, a fascinating tour of some of the challenges and some of the um, opportunities, let's say, in the landscape. Let's just finish off with one final question, which sort of speaks to uh, the ethos of the show. You may agree with this, you may not, but we're fundamentally optimistic about the future of agencies. I'm not. <laughs> Tell well, there you go. It's the answer to the question. Tell us why you're not then in that case. What I learned doing the behavioral science practice is the interesting thing was the first phone call came in. We said, you know, okay, um, we know what your problem is. Uh, it may be difficult to solve, but we do at least know what your problem is. And it's one you haven't spotted. But the second brief that comes in, we go and change the choice architecture of someone's website. It makes them for a piece of work that costs 25,000 pounds. It makes them, uh, uh, something like eight to 10 million pounds of incremental income that year and every subsequent year. And it was incremental high margin revenue, okay, from a change to the choice architecture, from a 25,000 pound thing, out of which we made about 25 grand, okay, mm -hmm. maybe 30. But that's not the problem, okay? The problem isn't that we made 30 grand. The problem was I sat back and said, well, we got it fucking made here because they'll be banging on our door three days later okay, to ask what else we can do along these lines. They never came back. What the fuck? Okay. Now, if you've got only a 1% chance of that kind of return, you'd come back, but they don't. Why don't they come back? Because if you read Chris, I think it's Chris Peters of Wavemaker, who publishes a B2B at weekly newsletter, which is pure gold dust, and he's brilliant. And I'm, I'm totally happy bigging him up, okay? Um, he, a B2B guru within Wavemaker, makes the point that the incentives for B2B innovation in B2B purchasing and decision-making are fundamentally not there. Because if you do something clever and you save money, the company gets the gain. And if you do something that goes wrong, you get the blame. And it's very analogous to a, a, a quote of Warren Buffett's where he says, so it's effectively what Gerd Gigerenza calls a risk, uh, um, risk aversion. Yes. Um, it is much safer to do what everybody else does and either gain only t tedious incremental improvements or even fail than it is to do something different because the incentives for doing something different and succeeding are not really there outside, say, banking or something. Okay. Now, mm. where they actually have, they have a proper bonus culture, which we don't, and our bonuses typically go to the bloody account people anyway for doing what they were supposed to be doing in the first place, as far as I can see. Okay. So um, the, the incentive to do the extraordinary isn't really there, all right? Now, what Warren Buffett said, he explained it in a beautiful sentence. He said, um, you know, whereas the behavior of lemmings is catastrophic, I do not know of a single case of an individual lemming being given a bad press, all right? Mm, so if you do something which is dumb that everybody else is doing, your reputation and your job and your career path are generally pretty safe. If you do something that's different, the upside from the gains doesn't really accrue to you. In fact, someone else will probably steal the credit anyway. Okay. You know, I, I, I didn't see anything in the annual report that said, you know, increased revenue through, um, uh, in the annual report of the company, we did the 10 million pound thing saying increased revenue due to better choice architecture and behavioral science. They probably, 
you know, they probably attributed that to like, you know, downstream cost cutting or something, right? I mean, generally, annual reports don't really talk about reven- the revenue line very much, by the way, which mm-hmm. is kind mm-hmm. of a problem for marketers. <laughs> okay. Um, Jules, Jules Goddard at uh, London Business School, a former advertising guy and utter, utterly brilliant bloke um, in all respects. Uh, he makes the point that, you know, if you look at a balance sheet, it's got one revenue line and about six cost lines. And generally, the discussion proceeds in that ratio. So bad news for marketers from the get-go, because everybody's talking about the certainties of cost reduction, which generates, you know, what you might call career, uh, career-protecting career incremental cost savings, okay? And no one's talking about the revenue line much at all. I mean, the fact that a company has to appoint a chief growth officer is kind of an admission of failure. I mean, isn't that everybody's job? <laughs> Apparently not, okay? Right. So no, it's a it, it it's a fundamental problem. It's a cliche, isn't it, within agencies that uh, you know people are fond of saying, well, you know, creative isn't a department; ideas can come from anywhere. And yet, still, we have these very narrow, kind of pyramid-shaped growth functions within agencies, as if some magical rainmaker is going to make it all happen on the bottom line. That's a nonsense, clearly. So, if you don't allow for randomness, you never get lucky, and you also become optimized on the past. Okay. Evolution knows there's a trade-off between exploit and explore. It's known in the field of algorithm design, it appears in the field of animal foraging, that fundamentally there's this trade-off. And of course, the ratio varies, but it's very rarely a hundred naught. Okay. Yes. It's like bees. You be exactly my point about bees. You have to have some bees that don't obey the waggle dance because otherwise you never just you never know where to go next after your existing pollen sources have become exhausted. You never get lucky. You never develop resilience. Fundamentally, you have to accept a certain proportion of failure. But we've created a business culture which doesn't know how to accept anything except incremental improvement or stasis. So, Rory, that's. Um just a, a sort of tour de force, if you like, of um, probably 30 reasons why we have challenges in our industry. But I also hear personally um, a whole bunch of green shoots. There's a bunch of things in there that we can work on. Ultimately, if we as an industry can get back to some sense of meaningful innovation, as opposed to being told what to do and charging by the hour to do it, there's a lot of work to do, but change can definitely happen. So for that note of optimism, which perhaps you don't share, but I certainly have it, Um, I'm going to say, Rory Sutherland, thank you very much for being on the show. Absolute joy. Thanks ever so much. What a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. Hopefully you've got at least one really useful takeaway. If so, I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me, Robin Bond, on LinkedIn, or drop me an email at robin.bond at codefinery.com. Now, it's podcast law that I compel you to subscribe to the show. So please do. And if you're happy to share this episode and help us reach a wider audience, thank you. I'll personally buy you a pint. Finally, if you're new to Codefinery, then here's the plug. We combine consulting sprints and executive coaching to help agencies like yours create your very own market of one. That means you can stand out, win more and command a premium, all while attracting the best talent and really thriving in your role. So if you're curious to learn more, drop us a line via the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.